once again, everyone's favorite place to hang out on a Tuesday. This is Nuance. I'm Mike Scala, and I'm joined, as always, by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip-hop artist and the chair of BLM Tokyo. How you doing, Timid? Doing all right. Uh, how about yourself? Doing well, doing well. I'm trying to stay cool in the summer heat. Yeah, everybody's uh, facing a little bit of that. Um, I'm, I'm okay, though. I'm good. So, nice over there in Japan. Yeah. Huh? It's nice out in Japan or how's the weather? Japan has some serious uh summers. They have some uh, very humid and hot summers. So it's no different this time around. You know, you gotta stay hydrated. You know, I got I got these joints with me. What is that? <laughs> um around in the summer, since it is gets so hot and uh to avoid heat stroke around the summer, these things pop up and they're little. Uh, the little salt candies that um, you know have have potassium in them, have salt in them, and you know they help to try to if people get de- dehydrated, it help kind of fight uh, that dehydration. So okay. heat stroke, kind of thing. There you go. Well, some housekeeping. We did have a guest scheduled, Erica Banks, but she had to postpone. So we will have her on in a future episode. But fret not, because we have our good friend, Paul Trust, who's joining us, and he's going to talk about something very topical. In fact, last week, we actually brought it up. You are suing the city over cuts to education in the budget, right? Correct. Yes, uh, the city and the Department of Education. So we can get into that in a few minutes. I think it's a very important thing to discuss. I'm glad we have you on this week to talk about it. But we'd like to start off with something on the lighter side. Uh, anything in particular we want to bring up this time? I know before we went on, we were talking about landlords and how frustrating they could be and real estate people who are trying to get an apartment. Have you had yeah. any experience with that, Jay? I mean, I know you've rented a few places. You kind of lived all over the place. Um, you know, I didn't have that uh, when I was when I was in New York. I didn't have have that issue. I mean, I really had the one place um, and that was <laughs> that was pretty easy getting into. I mean, there was the the. The posting on the side of the building with the the people the phone number to call called them up sent the application in and um you know there was no issue um and i, were I do they remember, asking were they asking for a lot of information documentation at the time um not really i think it was you know proof of employment um and from what i remember there wasn't much more after that it was more like a proof of employment of course id and that type of thing but yeah, nothing. I don't think there was anything too significant, like no bank statements or anything, if I remember correctly. Uh, I do remember that, um, you know, they had a property management company that was managing the property. And normally, I guess you're supposed to call the property management company and then they they deal with the the, the building. Um, but I called them directly because the number was on the building. And so the property management company didn't get their their cut. And so apparently a lot of people had just called the number and that's how people were moving in. So like they were having uh, issues with the property management company because they were upset because they weren't getting a cut. It's like, what do you need a cut for? Right. The number's on the building. We're calling them directly. They're handling it directly. Like, you, you know, you don't need a cut. You didn't do anything. Right. And I know that they changed the law recently about security deposits. I think they used to sometimes ask for first month, last month, and security deposits. So you had to pay like three months up front, which is a lot of money for many right. people. They just changed that, I believe. So now it's only two months, essentially, first month and security deposit that you would have to pay. So that's a good thing. They did make some reforms around that. But I found recently, because I'm helping my mom out now, 
there have st still been issues uh, with landlords and, and realtors. To me, asking for too much information, to, it felt a little too intrusive to me because they do ask now for bank statements. They ask the credit reports and they're not supposed to deny you an apartment based on a credit score, but they still ask for it. So you know how that goes. Now we do have good credit, so it's not a problem for us, but just the fact that they're asking for it made me a little uneasy. And they also seem to want, like you said, employment, not, not just history, but like proof of employment, but in the form of pay stubs. So if you have your own business, if you're self-employed or if you're retired, like my mom is, you're not gonna be able to provide pay stubs. And that became a challenge also because they wanted, it seemed like a lot of people were just expecting someone who just lived paycheck to paycheck, but then they were complaining that they couldn't kick people out if they had to evict someone, it's so impossible now because tenants have all these rights and because even COVID shut the courts down, it was so hard and people would just stay in the apartment forever. But if you are concerned about that, shouldn't you want someone who has the ability to pay? It seems to me like they wanted someone who was paycheck to paycheck. And if I was able to show that we had all this money, that didn't matter to them. In fact, one person, not to call anyone out, but one person actually said, well, if you have a lot of money in the bank, that doesn't mean anything because you could gamble it away. You can invest in crypto and lose it all tomorrow. To me, I think you're much more likely to lose a job than you are to lose a lot of money saved up in a bank that will cover multiple years rent. It seemed backwards to me. Yeah, I can see that. But um, at the same time, yeah, I can, uh, sorry, I got tissue here. Um, at the same time, I can understand some of it, but it, it does sound like they wanted way too much information. But I can understand them wanting like pay stubs and, um, you know, proof of income. Because again, like you could lose the money, it could be an investment, it could be something, but it, supposedly the income is more secure. But it it, yeah, supposedly. But again, if you've got it in the bank, and you can pay it off, and that should count for something as well, I think. I can't see how income, paycheck, because you could lose, to me, you could lose your job pretty easily. But are you really going to lose a lot of money in the bank? If you can cover, if you can show that right now, you can cover multiple years. And let's say it's a one-year lease. You can just pay the landlord for the whole year up front if you wanted to. I mean, the money is there. To me, that's much more secure than just having a job and being paycheck to paycheck. Because if you lose that job, you're not going to be able to pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, there's something to that too. Definitely. You know, and they also wanted more too. They wanted letters of recommendation. They want crazy. Yeah. They wanted all kinds of stuff. Um, tax. Some of them wanted taxes. They wanted your income tax. And they want, of course, your social security number so they can pull their own credit reports on you. I mean, it, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. That sounds like it's a little bit of overkill. So yeah, it's crazy. What do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I've I luckily own my place now, but um, back before when I used to rent, uh, last time I rented, um, it was rent stabilized, and there's always issues. And this is back up when I, I lived in Harlem, and there was always issues. A lot of my friends had rent stabilized, and they were always looking for ways to kind of kick them out. And I, as from what we could tell, if they did enough in renovations, then they could flip the apartment and get some Columbia kid and pay like twice as much. For them to move in um and uh yeah that 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 was always the risk and and after i left i had a roommate um and um uh, so after i left the roommate ended up uh renting the room as an airbnb he had a roommate for like a year and then started to to rent out the room but he would always be there which is a sort of gray area because it did say in his lease that he can't rent out the apartment as an airbnb in his mind he's like well i'm here it's just the other room but either way, the, 
the management flipped and the new people who ended up owning, like tried to drag me into a lawsuit, like to try to kick them out, kick them out. And I'm like, why are you calling me? And he's like, like, well, we don't have a record that you're not on the lease anymore. And I'm like, you know, I, I said, well, I haven't signed a lease with you in like five years. And they're on there. And I'm like, the last lease I signed was in whatever it was, 2005. And they, and I'm like, and I haven't signed a lease since that has my name on it. And they're like, well, that doesn't mean you moved out. And I'm like, but isn't that the whole idea of signing a lease? It's like, this is who lives there. And so, uh, well, you know, I that you moved out basically, right? To, to, to shift the burden to you to show that you were no longer involved. Yeah, I, I, from what I can tell, uh, sometimes with these lawsuits, they like cast a wide net and they're like, we don't think you're taking this as seriously. Like we're trying, you're, you have the potential of being sued here. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. Let's deal with him. <laughs> right. nothing to do with me. And we, we gave him, I guess, enough proof that I, you know, wasn't there that they just left me alone eventually. But you know, I felt bad for the guy I had to leave the apartment. And uh, I'm sure they just renovated it and started charging a lot more than rent stabilization. I, I think this is a common thing. We talk about, you know, insecurity for a lot of people, low income living. Um, I think this is something that a lot of, uh, land, you know, real estate landlord owners try to do because they don't want a rent stabilized apartment. Sure. And I know a lot of leases now do specifically have an Airbnb clause. So you cannot use this for Airbnb. Now, the law was always that, like you mentioned, if you are living in the apartment, you could rent out part of it to someone else, as long as you're not leaving it and renting the entire thing out to someone as an Airbnb. But if the lease specifies you can't use it for that purpose, then you're not allowed to according to the lease, right? Not the law, but the lease. Right. Yeah. So I think he, his interpretation was, well, I'm not using the whole apartment. I'm using a room. Right. So he was kind of hoping to escape. To find a loop I guess, yeah. My guess is the old management was just not on top of it. It was like, you know, whatever goes, there was so much going on in that building to begin with. Then the new people bought it and then they really started coming down. That's right. I also wanted to mention the duty to mitigate damages, which sounds like fancy legalese, but it's an important part of this area of the law. When I was renting in Virginia years ago, they had that duty where if a tenant broke a lease, if a tenant left before the lease was up, the landlord couldn't just sue the tenant for the money that was left on the lease. They had to first make an attempt to mitigate their damages. In other words, to re-rent the place to someone else. And then they can go after the tenant if they weren't able to make up that money. Let's say they rented it for less somehow, you know, after good faith efforts to rent it for the same or more, and they lost money, or they weren't able to rent it at all. They could then, whatever money they were out of the lease, they could sue the tenant to make them whole, but they first had to try at least to make up their money. And in a system like that, what ends up happening often is there's no reason to ever sue the tenant because you can re-rent for more money usually. And so you're not out any money. If the tenant leaves a few months early, you end up turning a profit really by immediately renting to someone else for more money because of, the, of how the market is. But that was in Virginia and other states. New York didn't have that until more recently. When I was in the state Senate, I was in the, as council in the legislature, I proposed that bill and it took a while to get it going. We finally got it passed a couple of years ago in New York. So now that's the law also in New York, but it wasn't, right? It used to be that if you just moved out, your landlord could just sue you immediately, but now at least they have to make an effort to, to rent to someone else first. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah. Because a lot of people get freaked out, like at the idea of breaking a lease, like, oh my goodness, you're breaking a lease. But most of the times you're not going to get sued for that because the landlord is going to make more money charging someone else more money for that same apartment. Is there not a I think penalty? it was always about the, the, getting the deposit back, right? Like if yeah. you break the lease, you're not going to get That's right. Back. If you break the contract, you'll have a hard time getting a security deposit back. Right. Um, 
I don't, I don't know there, but sometimes isn't there also a, a fee to break the lease? If you break it early, you have to pay something extra as well. Sometimes they might put that in the in the lease itself. Right, right. But again, there's a duty to mitigate. So even if there was a fee, let's say that tax on an additional $500, if the landlord makes up that money, they can't collect it from you. They can only collect what they were not able to make up by renting it to someone else. True, true, true. And also, wow. the secured deposit isn't supposed to be used for the last month's rent, but that's oftentimes how it works out. Like if, you know, let's say you're getting a secured deposit back, but you left a month early, then they can say, okay, well, it basically is the same deal as if you just paid your, your full amount, right? Right, yeah. Which, you know, I mean, that could work in the favor of the tenant as well, because, you know, then the cash is already paid, so you don't have to come out of pocket for something. Um, so you know, if, as long as there's that agreement, then, then at the time, it should be fine. Yeah, but it's... It's rough these days. And with COVID, especially with all the courts closed, I mean, it, it was true that you weren't able to go to court and evict a tenant if you needed to. So people did get stuck. Yeah. But there are also people who think that all evictions should be illegal. I mean, I don't know how that would work in society, but I do see that sometimes. I, when I was running for city council, I got one of these questionnaires from a group. And I was like, do you agree all evictions are bad and should be stopped? But, okay, how is that really going to work realistically, though? Right. Um, I, I've seen that too. Um, people calling for those types of things. And yeah, realistically, how would that how would that work? Because if that person just let's say the tenant just stops paying rent and and for whatever reason, maybe they couldn't they can't afford it or or something bad's happened, or they just, just decide, hey, you know what, I'm not paying rent. Um then the the owner of the place is liable. I mean, because the bank still needs their mortgage payment. Um, so the owner of the place has it, and now they don't have use of the place of their their own property. So it's like, you know, how does that really realistically work? Because if that's the case, then you know, you just rent some place and be like, hey, I'm going to stop paying rent, and you can't evict me, so I'm going to live here for I, free. You know, I did see some of that happen when I was hired to administer COVID rent relief funds for the state. I unfortunately did see cases where it looked like people were moving their families into large apartments during COVID and then never paying the rent. Like, I don't, I don't know how that really happens, but that's what they would do. They, maybe they live in a one bedroom. They move into like this extravagant three bedroom for money that they couldn't afford, didn't pay the rent for not even one month and then immediately applied for COVID rent relief from the state. Right. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know how that would work or, or what's, you know, if you say something like that, you've got to give some kind of uh, a way or process that that works out. You know, um, right. And of course, there are people who, like myself, believe housing is a human right. So we should do all we can to make sure people are housed. But you still yeah. have to have a system in place to make it work. Because like you said, under the system we have now, if you just say people don't have to pay rent, then it's going to lead to more foreclosures and people losing their homes and more people out on the street. I mean, you need to do something to make it work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. I know uh, I used uh, during the COVID with, uh, you know, uh, people not had a freeze on paying rent i know i've spoken to a few uh owners of buildings and they felt that they were being painted as the bad guy that like these were not like mass developers and you know owners of huge conglomerate it was like i own a store and two levels of apartments above it and it's been in my family and that's it and you know and we depend on that to pay our bills so you know it's a tough situation in one sense you yeah of course you don't someone you know loses their job things are tough and you don't want to kick them out but the for someone who's like a, a small owner of just a couple units like 
what do they do? Who's looking out for them? And I, I, didn't, right. I didn't know, you know, that's how they felt that no one was looking out for them or people looking out for those renting. Uh, but no one was looking out for the small the one who was like just a couple units. Right. When people think of like um, a landlord or someone that's renting out a place, um, you know, they, they tend to think, oh, well, that person must be like crazy rich because they own this property and they're renting it out. And they don't think that it could be it could be a person who's just got one or two properties that they're renting out. And, you know, that it's paying it's paying for their investment while they're, they've got tenants in there, but they don't have any other income or any enough income to cover that that uh, cost for someone that's living in there that, you know, they get no benefit from. So, right. You know, they rely on it. It's not just extra income for a lot of people. They need that money. Right. 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 You know, they're just, uh, some of them are just everyday people. They're not big, massive companies. Right. So. All right. Well, let's talk about the MTA. I was trying to think of a segue real quick, but I don't know. You might as well go from housing to transportation, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> because we did mention how the MTA did put out its, 20 year assessment plan. And I know a lot of people are saying, oh, 20 years is forever. But encouraging news is that the Rockaway Beach line was the only Queen subway project included in that. And so we always think that's encouraging. Of course, it doesn't mean that we're home free and we were getting the, the project. No, but we need it in that assessment plan. In other words, when the MTA is looking to the future at potential projects to expand the system, we definitely want that one in there. This is one that we've been fighting for for a long time. So it's good to see that it was there. I know, Paul, obviously you work very closely on the Queens Link, uh, which is the Rockwood Beach Line project. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So um, yeah, from uh, discussions with the MTA, uh, one of the uh, one of the one of the next steps, like just a quick backtrack, there was a study done that determined subway reactivation was feasible. Um, it was uh, the, the uh, MTA study released in 2019, what they called the sketch assessment. They determined it was uh, feasible. Um, and in their next steps, which was like near the end of the report, they say there's a lot of questions that need to be answered to move this project forward, which would require what's called an EIS, an environmental impact statement. And when we were, that's, a, that's an extensive study, would do community outreach, would look at sound mitigation, vibration mitigation, would look at, you know, is there anything of the current infrastructure that would, could still be viable to be used, shored up, you know, uh, some foundational issues. And so just looking at basically everything, how many cars it would take off the road, what would it do to the neighborhood surrounding? And uh, so we were talking to the MTA saying that we would really like the study done to, to, to find, to answer these questions so many people have, including ourselves. And they're like, well, we're developing this 20 year assessment and, an e and for an EIS to be done, it would need to be considered as one of the proposals uh, on that assessment. So for us, it was a big victory to see it listed as one of the you know proposals that hopefully, you know, we're, we're assuming from what we read, it's on equal footing and be looked at, you know, impartially as a possibility of something that could you know, be that they would determine to be worth investing. Right. And for those who don't know, an EIS is required for any project that has a substantial impact on the environment. So it's something that needs to happen in the process. So if the Rockway Beach line or the Queens Link were to be built, this would be a required step and it would be 
done prior to a final decision being made on a project. So it's kind of like the next step along the way, but it is necessary. It's not like, oh, why are you studying this again? Did you study? Like it, it needs to be done and it's a crucial step in the process. And if you get it done and if it's favorable, that can lead to it then being funded and implemented. So it's very important that this happens. And also when we talk about environmental, you know, the environmental impact, it's not just about the environment in the abstract as you might think of it. It's the environment meaning the neighborhood's quality of life and traffic and you know parking in some cases, uh, people's property, property values, all these different things. How does it affect the environment uh, uh, you know, around the project and wh what is it gonna do you know, to the city, to the infrastructure? All these different things need to be considered. Um, you know, it isn't just, does it cause more pollution, right? It's, it's everything. It's, it's really like a cost benefit analysis of the project looking into, looking into it uh, with great detail. Yes, that is that is correct. Um, and in the in the 2019 feasibility study, you know, we there was some things that were not looked at, which was kind of mind blowing to us, like the fact that the Rockaway Beach branch would cross the J train and would cross the A train, um, and they never included that as potential ridership for the line. But you know, with this other line that that sort of kind of runs. Um, paralleled uh, the IBX, which Governor Hochul is behind, when they came up with a, you know, a, a ridership estimate of 80,000 uh, people daily, they looked at every line that it would cross and then added that in. So we know that the projects are not being looked at the same way. And we're hoping as advocates that as this is being looked at against, like, say, the IBX or other uh, you know, transit-related uh, proposals that they could move forward with over the next 20 years, we want to make sure it's on equal footing. That's like, as an advocacy group, I think that's going to be our, our next step is to see if we can get the EIS, the, state, the study happening, and then make sure it's being considered in this 20-year needs assessment on equal footing with the other projects, right. like not getting it sandbagged or something. And also make sure the EIS is done properly. Because we did have complaints with the feasibility study. And in fact, you and your group were able to uncover some of the discrepancies. And you know, it seemed like the cost was greatly inflated. And it seemed like, as you alluded to, the ridership was underestimated. So we want to make sure that the numbers are a fair assessment of the reality because we have to take a look at the cost and benefit analysis. Obviously, it's going to cost a lot of money, but it's not going to cost as much money as they projected. And what is the economic development? What is the return on investment? That's really something that we need to see. Sure. Yeah. So that study came out, which hyperinflated the cost. We had an, a corridor analysis done with by a third party. We were able to get together some money from city council member discretionary funding. Um, and we, they, we had them run the study because everyone who was in the transit world was like looking at the numbers of the cost. And like this would make it like the most expensive transit project in the world. Like it's more expensive than, uh, you know, what the Second Avenue subway is doing, you know, going through, you know, bedrock. And uh, so they were like, no, 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 no. So uh, we, we were able to get them to do an analysis and what we realized they did. I, I think they didn't think we would look at the numbers, but uh, the cost for raw materials and concrete steel, everything that we agreed with, but what, what they did was something called soft costs, like that are looking at like different, like things like lawyers fees and um, uh, it, everything was basically taken to what you can't, you can't really estimate, but they like did like a worst case scenario, like, oh, we'll just say it's going to cost this much and then hyperinflated it. Whereas the um, company that we had called Thames that uh, did their analysis, they put the cost uh, 
from where the MTA had it at, which is like, I believe 8.1 or 8.2. And they were able to bring it down to around three and a half billion as more of a feasible cost. But when they released that study saying the ridership was 47,000, which is nothing, which is not nothing, that's still a decent ridership, but again, didn't look at the intersections with other lines. And then they said that the cost was, there were others like, oh, well, this can never happen. You know, everyone needs to move on. This is the nail in the coffin. And then we're like, hold on a minute. Something's a little funny here. So yes, as this moves forward to be looked at, hopefully again with um, fresh eyes um, and uh, impartially, that, that's kind of our job is to make sure. <laughs> I think we're going to need to be a little bit of a watchdog on this. Yeah, absolutely. But it's something that we've all fought for for such a long time. And now we're talking about 60 years since the trains last ran on the Rockaway Beach line. So obviously long overdue, but hopefully now we'll be able to move forward with this EIS and just, you know, keep the pressure on and keep it going because people of Rockaway and people of Queens and really the people of New York City on the whole are demanding this. Anyway, anyone who's a transit advocate, anyone who takes the train to work, anyone who wants a better commute, anyone who wants to be able to travel north-south, not just east-west in Queens, needs this. It's a very important project. Agreed. And, you know, I, I keep hearing horror stories of people trying to get to the Rockaways from Manhattan or Queens, you know, uh, Western Queens, Central Queens, about being stuck in the Van Wick and, or, you know, any of those Woodhaven Boulevard for hours. And, you know, this would get you there so much quicker. You could probably get from, say, Astoria to the Rockaways in under 45 minutes with, uh, you know, transit line like this. Right. And economic development is really a big part of this because South Queens is cut off economically from the rest of Queens and from the rest of the city because it's in such a transit desert. And just think about all the business opportunity that's lost, all the money, you know, when you get people to school faster, when you get people to business faster, it's not just about leisure, right? It's about people's livelihoods. And it could really be a game changer for Queens and for the city. I, I completely agree. I feel like our section of Queens South Queens is a way, in a way like Staten Island. Like if you want to get to Manhattan, you got to go through Brooklyn, you know? Like you can't just, it's, it doesn't have the connectivity it, it should. And a lot of people in, you talk to, I bet if you queried people in Astoria or Jackson Heights or Long Island City, uh, have they heard of Richmond Hill? Probably most would say, yes, where is Richmond Hill? And I bet most of them will be like, uh, by flushing, right? Uh, you know, That's a great point. point. Yes, I agree a thousand percent with that. And I've experienced that my whole life with South Queens. You go to most of the city and you say you're from Howard Beach or you're from Richmond Hill, or Rosedale, Springfield Gardens. They've heard of these places, but they really have no idea where they are because they've never gone there. There's no way of getting there. If they take mass transit, it's so disconnected from the rest of the city. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and this is sort of, you know, where everyone needs to be a community partner if a line was going to be built, because I'm sure, you know, you've lived here a lot longer than I have, Mike, because I was in Jackson Heights up until a year ago. I'm sure there's a lot of people who kind of like it that way. They like their kind of quiet, removed neighborhoods. They like the fact that rents are the, are, you know, we talked about rent. Rents are significantly less than Western Queens. Uh, the cost to buy a house. I just saw a house on the market in Woodhaven. Looked really nice. I was kind of a little jealous of this. I saw a six-bedroom, three-bath, uh, six-bedroom, three-bath house in Woodhaven, half a block from Jamaica Avenue, so right by the J train, uh, going for seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars. I think it was. You, a house like that in you know Western Queens would easily run you a million, twice that, probably more. 
I think that's a, what, what you mentioned as far as economic development and everything and people liking the quiet and whatnot. I think that's one thing people also should uh, realize that if you make it easier to get there, then there's going to be that that's going to come with it, too. It's not going to be necessarily as quiet as it was. More people are going to come. Those those prices are going to go up because now people can access it and be like, oh, well, it's it's a little bit cheaper there. Let's jump on the train and, and move there. We can still get access to where we go. And now everything is going to, the values are going to go up or the costs are going to go up as well. It's certainly a concern. And uh, that has clearly, you know, we're not the first, you know, part of, uh, you know, a city that has looked to improve mass transit. And, uh, you know, there are certain things that can be mitigated to, uh, to keep like a, an abatement on raising right. taxes for you know, a certain number of years to you know help. Uh, the, the thing is you don't want displacement, right? You don't wanna change the, no one wants to change the character of the neighborhood. I mean, for me personally, I would love to see, I, I feel like Jamaica Avenue could use a little work. Um, just like I hear you know people who love the Rockaways, there's areas of the Rockaways that could use a little work. Um, and uh, right. it, 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 it doesn't, you know, I want the area to flourish, you know, the, the, the fine line that you bring up, Jay, is like, how do you help an area flourish and thrive and grow without making it unaffordable or uh, no longer recognizable for the people who currently live there? Right. And the thing is this, we're so transit starved in these areas that all we're asking really for is equity. We're not asking for a radical transformation of the area and all these you know <laughs> fancy bells and whistles. No, we just want to train to get to the city, really, and, and throughout Queens even faster than we can get now. I mean, yes, obviously it is going to create economic development and that does come with a certain amount of change, but we're still just asking for something that we don't have that is going to make a big difference in people's lives. And, you know, it's, it's like, we're kind of trying to get to zero in, in a way, like we're, we're negative right now. We're just trying to catch up with the, the, the times and the rest of the city and just have a little bit more equity and, and fairness. Right. Right. And I think ridership too, and this goes back to, I don't know if you ever had talked about the 2020 census at all um, in your show, but you know, this goes back to, and I'm sure this is true probably Mike, where you live uh, compared to like where I live in Richmond Hill. I think we're seeing this all throughout South Queens is that you have these originally single family homes that now the basement's rented out. The first floor is one family living there. The second floor is another family living there. So, and a, a lot of these families, I'm not sure if the census is representing all the people that are living you know, at, in these, in these, what used to be single family homes. I know there's been an issue. Of course, it came out with Ida about these illegally rented basements. There's a lot, and there's been a push to try to make it legal. Um, but there's a lot of basements. Rented, and I'll tell you, I'll be out there with my hose and someone will come by, you know, watering the grass and someone will come by and say like, Hey, you have a basement. Can I rent it? But it, mm. it happens many times. Wow. And, and I doubt these people are being included in what would be a potential ridership. But chances are, I'm guessing these people asking me who are walking up to me, you know, not driving in a car, you know, may not have a license. We don't know their, you know, their status uh, of citizenship and probably would really benefit from mass transit. Sure. I want to shout out some of the people in the chat, James, Michelle, Peter, Lixa. Lixa says, we have the best mass transit system compared to the rest of the country. People of the Rockways have the ferry. She says the transit system was designed over 100 years ago to commute in and out of Manhattan. It definitely needs a revamp. Yeah, that is true. Um, but I would make the point that even in the Rockaways, yeah, you sure you have the ferry to Manhattan and you can get to Manhattan, but you can't get to Midtown too easily. You can get to downtown. And people would say that 
well, people in the Rockaways work downtown, so that's all they need. No, they work downtown because that's where they can get to. If you can get them to Midtown quicker, they'll take advantage of those jobs, maybe even start their own businesses in Midtown. I mean, Midtown Manhattan was suffering. You saw all the storefronts open and for rent, and they couldn't rent them out. If you can get people to Midtown quicker and connect Midtown Manhattan, which is supposed to be the center of our city, to the rest of the boroughs, then yeah, you'll see a lot more economic development on both sides. And I think that's only fair. People should be able to get to work, not just to downtown Manhattan, but to Midtown as well. Very true. And, and you know, one other thing that uh, with the other line of the IBX, when they did like a promotional video that they pointed out, everything that they pointed out applies to reactivation of the Rockaway Beach branch. So nowadays, most people who live in their borough work in their borough. Um, and we're seeing what is turning into a thriving commercial center in Jamaica. That's a very much a developing story. Uh, Oh, it seemed to me overnight, Long Island City all of a sudden became the city of in itself, and you have Flushing. But how does someone in South or Central Queens get to these economic centers? You have to take a bus to right. a train. Buses aren't that reliable. They exactly. bunch all the time. You know, so you want a reliable way to get to work. And it's also quality of life. Yeah, a kid, they could just take the, the, the Q10 and, you know, then they can catch on this. Okay, but, you know, instead of having a one train ride, they, this is now adding an hour of commuting a day that they're not spending with their family or seeing their kids off to right. school or having dinner with them, you know. So and, it's and quality of life. Right. Time is money. And what about the idea of taking mass transit to a restaurant, a nice restaurant in the city or in Queens even to have dinner? If you're in a transit desert now, that's not too easy to do. And again, all these businesses, not just in South Queens, but throughout the city could benefit if we connected it to Queens. That's that's true, too. And there's, there's so many other benefits. Like if you take some of the heat off of, like, say, the J train or the A train because you have other ways to get to Manhattan, you're going to find people are going to find a seat. That is a long ride into Midtown. That's an hour plus, you know, and, um, you know, now you can find a seat, whereas before you would have to stand. And I could tell you as someone who's taken the J and the A five days a week going to my former school um, is that uh, a lot of the issues like you talk about road rage, like I don't know if there's a term, but there's train rage. And a lot of times it's because you're standing like this. you got someone here, someone here. You bump into them. It does this and it causes causes a problem. You know, get off me. You know, I, I've seen it so many times. I mean, so, and unfortunately, I think there was just even a shooting on the on the A train. Um, and, wow. you know, I, I, I don't know what caused that or what led to that, but a lot of times these heated moments happen be, from the pack train and people being upset because a pack train also means the doors are opening, closing, opening. They're not, the train isn't moving. So the stress level goes up. All these things are adding stressors. So you're going to have a safer and quicker ride and it's going to, you know, make your, your commute enjoyable. And even if you're not taking the Rockaway Beach branch, you know, reactivated. Right. It's like a domino effect as well. So you did mention your former job. I want to get to that. I also wanted to mention really quickly, there was a police officer who lived in the Rockaways on Beach 139th, I believe, who tragically shot himself and passed away yesterday. So big news in the area, our thoughts and, and condolences go out to the family. But I did want to get to what we really came to talk about, which was this lawsuit that you have against the city and the mayor, and you successfully won a TRO. So why don't you introduce that? I know people may not know, but you're a teacher, right? You teach a music program, and that was cut. Yep. And so you lost your job as a result of the New York City budget, right? Correct. Yes. So if I take the story back, you got me in early June. I'm, I'm buying equipment. I'm planning for September. Um, you know, 
starting to, you know, I still have my spring concert and my graduation to do, but I'm starting to think about September and what I want to do and how I want to build my program even further and make it grow. And we had some budget. It was a user to lose it type thing. So I'm buying some drums, uh, getting some replacement gear uh, that just things that just got damaged from wear and tear. And um, then I get called into the principal's office. I'm like, oh no, what I'm racing through my mind. What's going on here? Um, my principal calls me in and she's seated at the table with a smile and the AP is seated with a smile and they're like, hi, Paul, why don't you have a seat? And I'm like, oh boy. Uh, so they sit me down and they explained to me that the city had, the city council had just voted on a budget and the budget is significantly cutting funding to many schools and our school in particular was looking at losing uh, about half a million dollars. And um, things were pretty threadbare to begin with. Uh, this is my school, I, I taught in uh, Parksville, Brooklyn. Um, and uh, they, they said that um, with trying to figure out how they can keep the level of the quality of education up with the, the challenge of losing half a million dollars, uh, unfortunately, it looks like they came down to a choice of either art or music would have to go. And they said during the pandemic, they felt like they prioritized music. At one point, we didn't have an, we didn't have an art teacher. We hired one this year. Um, and uh, now they feel like they're going to prioritize art. Um, and I've been in the school. I was hired in 2009. I've been there, you know, almost 13 years. And so... Um, now, after she laid out that scenario, uh, my principal, she then said, and listen, this is the worst case scenario. We have a feeling we can appeal our case and we have a good chance to win because the enrollment that they've projected for our school is far lower than our own projected enrollment. And we also know there's always last minute people coming in. And so we think if we go to them and speak sense and tell them that your enrollment is off and you need to fund per student this amount, we feel we can get that budget restored. So we're just telling you, be forewarned, you know, this is a worst case scenario. Um, but, you know, as as other schools have tried to advocate for themselves, we're hearing it didn't go well because the budget with the budget mayor was, you know, set in his ways. He used a formula called fair student funding. Now, this is a formula that came about during the Bloomberg, when the uh, Chancellor Cohen days, uh, when they were uh, determined an allocation per student. Uh, the idea was to create equity that every student costs this much money per year in the school funding. But um, what it did, it actually ends up not being fair. It doesn't, it doesn't equate for schools that have students with special needs or require, you know, schools that have, uh, might need more social workers and counselors. It might be students that, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, home or food uh, situations where they're, you know, the instability. Um, and also, um, take a small school like mine. There's certain things, I worked at a small school, there's certain things you need, like a principal, you need an assistant principal, you need a nurse. All these things are far more part of their overall budget than for a school of like 5,000 students. The school of 5,000 has an AP and a principal too, but that's a far smaller portion of their budget. So, it, you know, my principal explained to me that first student funding is not fair at all. And it was, it was unfortunately impacting them more uh, substantially than some other schools. But be that as it may, uh, we were slated to lose. She said the music program would have to go. And as they, we start hearing schools are losing their appeals, it just, you know, she was just laying out the picture that it wasn't looking good. And um, yeah, so I was um, let go from the school. 
And I started to write on Twitter and I'm not much of a Twitter person, but I started to write a story because it was affecting me a lot. This one of my students was, you know, I was asking kids at the end of the year, as I always do, what are you doing over the summer? And one of them said, well, I'm going to go to camp for a month, but then I'm going to spend August uh, trying to raise money. I'm going to open a lemonade stand to try to see if I can get your job back because we want music at our school. And that just like impacted me. Like, what do you say to that? All right. And so I put that up on Twitter and um, I uh, a couple other quotes and also they started getting retweeted, retweeted. And uh, then like, you know, New York Times, people were retweeting them. And the next thing I know, I start getting journalists, uh, you know, uh, reaching out to me and saying like, hey, we'd like to talk to you about, you know, the lemonade stand girl or about, you know, what's going on with you? Because I became like one of the first like real life examples because the mayor had presented a much rosier picture to the city council about what these cuts would mean than what they actually meant. Uh, they were described as being like very minuscule, not only affecting newer teachers, programs wouldn't be touched. Of course, my program was touched and many others. Um, and that, um, uh, yeah, so basically they were, they were not presented the, an accurate picture of what would happen. So city council votes on it, thinking that it's it sounds like a very small cut and um, teachers such as myself would be secure. And then they start hearing from us. I reached out to some of the council members that you and I know in South Queens and you know other places uh, where my school was and the same story started to appear. Wait, you lost your program? You're a teacher since 2005? You've been at the school since 2009? And wait, a park school, school is not gonna have music? Like, whoa, wait, this is, insane and so that you know this all this story started popping up across the five boroughs and i think a lot of the city council members started realizing that they're caught with egg on their face they were told one thing by the budget department from the mayor and it was not reality and now they're being hit with reality and, and they just realized not only did they vote on a budget but they voted on it three weeks early and they started you know celebrating to a certain extent you know many of them are first year council members and uh, they thought they had done a really good job and then realizing that, no, this is a big problem. So, um, as I said, the, the tweets started getting attention. I started talking uh, with some, going on some radio shows and um, doing some interviews uh, um, with like New York Post. And um, so then uh, Eleni, who uh, is uh, heads Class Size Matters, it's a school advocacy group. She mentioned to me, um, she's like, hey, Paul, uh, we're trying to get a lawsuit together. She explained it to me. Um, that apparently when the chancellor has a budget, there is a crucial middle step that was not taken in this instance. There is a P, something called a PEP, that's a Panel for Education Policy. Uh, they meet regularly to discuss issues. You, you know, it could be contracts with the city, uh, you know, with our different businesses, you know, that supply paper or whatever to schools. But in this in this case, they were going to have a PEP about the budget. They were supposed to be presented with the budget and you have a ton of parents on the call and it's like a town hall almost, like they got a chance to speak out. Um, and well, the just mayor to, had- To jump yeah. in real quick, what you mentioned there is actually analogous to an EIS really for, for the budget because yes. what we didn't mention when we talked about the EIS is that it has a public comment component. So part of what it does is it allows the public to give their input before a major project happens. And this is really a step that's, similar in a sense in that it's supposed to give people a chance to speak on what happens with the way their money is spent. And you're saying that they skip that step, right? Right. Yeah. So an EIS has uh, a completely has a computer community outreach, does town halls. So, you know, it's an expensive and in-depth study that could take, you know, a year plus 
um, that can cost a million dollars plus, but it will give you a nuts to bolts, you know, everything that goes on in the study. And so, yes, the PEP was supposed to hear from the chancellor, presented with the budget, and parents were, uh, could express their concerns. Um, well, at the time, early June, before the budget was approved, our um, comptroller, Brad Lander, he was starting to raise alarm bells. He said, he was saying, this is going to kill arts and music programs. Like he was, uh, he was saying this. And, you know, unfortunately, the city council didn't get the, the, the proper feedback because the PEP never happened first. So it would go from the chancellor, approved by the PEP, with that forum for city council members to hear concerns about the budget and then go to the city council for final approval. He, he declared an emergency. What emergency? I don't know, COVID. I'm not really sure what the emergency was, but it doesn't seem like this is an emergency situation that it has to be shoved through. Now, when does this panel have its power? Is it any time there's a budget effect? Is it any cut to education? I mean, what kind of sparks that power? When do you need to consult with this panel or is it always with every budget? Every budget, yes. From what, what I've been told, you have a budget. Now, this isn't the first time an emergency has been declared. There's been precedent for this. So I think the chancellor was going off of that. Oh, I'll just say it's an emergency. Skip these guys. Now, granted, a lot of them are appointed by, by the mayor. He is a super majority. But the point is, is that you have advocacy groups like Make the Road and uh, more, more caucus in the UFT and in our teachers union that would have a chance to speak and advocate and explain why this is a bad thing. And they didn't have a chance to, to speak their voice. Uh, a, a huge portion of the democratic process was just taken away. And so emergency, you know, it's almost like declaring martial law, right? You know, we have an emergency. This, you know, all these protections you think you have are gone. So we're going to declare martial law. We're going to take away the PAP and we're going to just go, we're going to create this nice, pretty spreadsheet that's, uh, oh, sorry, a PowerPoint presentation that's gonna show these, that nothing bad's gonna happen with these budget cuts, it's fine. We're just uh, gradually weaning you off of the federal stimulus money that is there, uh, that can be spent. In other words, this isn't a cut that has to happen. The money is there. Um, and then the city council uh, was presented this way. I don't think very many of them looked too closely at the numbers behind it because the mayor said, we gave you all the information you need it's not our fault if you didn't, you know, read the fine print, so to speak. Um, and uh, so they approved it. And uh, yeah, so our lawsuit basically is stating that you did not follow proper protocol. You did not allow for the PEP to have their budget meeting to approve the budget before going before the city council. It's a strong case. And um, that's where we're, what's going to be um, going before the New York Supreme Court on August 4th. Okay. Licks in the chat says they declared emergency and hurt the schools. Very sad. I mean, yeah, true. Some emergency, right? You, you want to declare an emergency to, to do good, not to hurt teachers and, and students. Right. So, it's, it's, been a, it's been an interesting uh, trip because now the, you know, the mayor has pointed fingers at everyone but himself. He's pointed fingers, well, it's the federal stimulus uh, money that's going. Well, it's the Blasio's fault because he, he flushed, he, he, the schools were flushed with money under him and now we got to take things back. Uh, oh, it's actually, we're going to blame fair student funding on the state, even though they had nothing to do with it. You know, I'm just pointing fingers. Right. That was pointing fingers at me. He's pointing fingers sure. at the lawsuit. Yeah. 
So sure. he's, he's saying he's actually frozen everything. We've heard of like arts initiatives that were already funded. He's like, oh, sorry, you got, you're not going to get a chance to do that. Blame the lawsuit. They're the ones holding up everything. Right. So, so, let me ask this. Uh, so, yeah. so you got the TRO, which is a temporary restraining order pending the next hearing of the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, that puts a freeze on things. Now, does that just freeze the cuts to education or does that freeze all allocations of the budget? What is the scope of the TRO? That's that's a, a good question. From what I, I did ask our lawyer this question, um, and she says it's compartmentalized to uh, education funding. So, like for example, if we get what we want, which is the opportunity to provide the city council with a revote, because we've Adrian Adams put out a letter. There were forty-one city council members that signed on to it. Um, there were I think about ten that did not. Not going to name names, um, but uh, that they said that they felt that they were, you know, misled and that uh, the, it was asking the mayor to restore funding to the schools um, that they deserve. So we have a feeling if given a chance for a revote, those 41 uh, city council members uh, will probably take advantage of that and vote no. Or would it you be know, a revote on the entire budget or just on the education cuts? That's what I asked and what I've been told they would be compartmentalized just to the education budget. Okay. So what, what happens in the meantime? You got the temporary restraining order. Uh, what happens in the meantime for, for yourself and people like you? Like you go back to work, you get you get uh, your salary, or it's like you're you're in a waiting game and doesn't, you know, what happens this, to you? This is this is the crazy thing, Jack, is that I'm gonna get paid either way. Getting getting removed from my school community is just harming the school community. I what so what happens with a teacher? Um, let me try to explain this. So if a teacher gets excess, so if we're if we're like we're cut, like the music program gets cut, I'm a music certified teacher, I'm no longer a member of that school community. Uh, I am considered a teacher in excess. So over the summer, there is a um, portal that any teacher can use, accessed or otherwise, that's called the open market hiring system. So any school that has an opening can put, has to actually, it's not they can, they have to put that opening uh, for fairness and transparency and transparency on the open market site. And then anyone can put, can upload their resume and cover letter to that school and apply for a job. Um, so this is a system that came about well, since I've been a teacher and it's a great, it's a great way. You want to move somewhere closer to your, to your to home. You can just start looking, you know, see, is there any schools open? Um, and uh, so this is open until about August 7th, I believe. So we're getting near the end of open market hiring. And I can tell you, there's very few jobs out there. When you cut budgets for over 75% of schools, there aren't too many hiring music and art teachers, you know? I think there's currently three openings in all of Manhattan. And there's about the similar for Brooklyn and for Queens. There just aren't that many openings. Um, and so uh, they, after that portal closes, another portal opens up that's just for excess teachers. It's kind of the last minute scramble like schools are just finalizing or someone moves out, you know, and they need, they need a position. It's the last hope um, before we become what's called an ATR, which is a floating sub. In other words, they could have a music teacher such as myself teaching AP history to high school in the Bronx. Could happen. They try to keep you like in the same district as your school, but they said you can literally be sent to Staten Island. You know, it's wherever there's a need. What they said is there will never be a day you're going to be sitting at home twiddling your thumbs. We will always find something for you to do. So uh, that's kind of what I don't want to have happen. I don't want to be an ATR because uh, my principal has told me she gets a list of ATRs 
at the beginning of every school year. Some have been in the system, she says, for six years. They've just been doing this floating game, you know, which is, you know, it's uh, it's 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 uh, demoralizing. And, you know, right. Maybe a little unrelated, but on a similar type topic, I dealt with the unemployment system and uh, they tried to take unemployment back from teachers because during COVID, obviously a lot, a lot of teachers went on unemployment. Then they they played these games where they would say, well, you know, we offered you work and you didn't take it, but they might have offered a job, you know, three boroughs away in the place that you, you never would have taught before doing something, teaching something you don't usually teach. And if you don't take that job, then they say, well, now you're no longer eligible for unemployment because we did try to give you work. All right. I should have right. a teacher who was dealing with that. Yeah, that's that's a concern of mine too. Is I know as an ATR, you're it's kind of like unemployment in a way. You have to, you're supposed to keep actively searching. I don't know if there's ever a point where it's like you take this job in Hunts Point, even though you don't have a car, or else you're going to get let go. I that's one thing I need to. I'm trying. Uh, I will discuss that with the union if it ever comes, you know, to the point where I'm in excess. Um, but the idea, hopefully, is that we it won't come to that that I can help be part of the lawsuit. So right now there's two teachers and two parents on it. Technically I'm a parent and a teacher. And also I'd like to add that my children, I have three daughters that go to local schools here in Richmond Hill. Their schools are also experiencing detrimental effects from these cuts. I found out that where two of my daughters are going. Now, when I spoke to them about like the cuts and I started to get involved with activism with this, I said, how are these cuts affecting you? Because there's a spreadsheet you can actually look at how much the school is getting cut. It was something like 750000 for my daughter's school. And then they're like, well, we think we can get a lot of that back with grant money, but we're proud to report that we're not going to be having to fire any teachers. And I, that was like, that was great. But then I found out there's a little more to that story. The music teacher who used to teach there decided to leave for a school closer to home. And granted, yes, they're not firing a music teacher, but they're deciding, they're not deciding, because of the budget cuts, they're not able to replace that music teacher. So they're, they're not firing the music teacher, but this, my daughters, two of my daughters, and as a music teacher, they're not getting music at their school anymore. It's not gonna happen because, um, because of the budget cuts. So that's another music teaching position that's just gone. And my, where my youngest daughter goes, they're losing a guidance counselor. And I can tell you this, as a teacher during this pandemic, I've never seen as many meltdowns or students in crisis as we're seeing now. All of us are just looking at each other. It's like we hear kids screaming and, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's just like, my God, what is going on? I've never seen so many students that have needs to not have that second guidance counselor or a support or because social workers are also getting hit hard. guidance, social workers, all these, you know, things that are not considered as unfortunately schools are based, you know, a lot of their ability to survive is based off the testing of like math, science, art. Um, and so the other subjects aren't considered as important or guidance, social workers. So these are all the areas that are getting hit the hardest. Sure. And that's my biggest issue with the mayor is he's calling this right sizing or, you know, he's, you know, there was a, a, a town hall he had in Harlem where uh, there was an activist who spoke out about the cuts and called them a clown. I don't know if you saw that, that like made a lot of news. And then he start, started into his usual like line saying, I'm not new to this. I'm like, well, if you're not new to this, then you know the arts and music we're going to get cut. So don't be telling city council that this is only going to be new hires because you know that's not the case. If you're maybe you are new to this, so I'm not new to this. I know how it goes. I'm not the first time I've been cut, you know, or they tried to cut me. So um, we yeah. talked about it last week right here on the show, how 
music education in particular is so important to making someone a well-rounded person. And that gives us a better, more enriched society. And I know, like you said, people might look at it like, well, if you're going to make some priorities here, you know, you have to maybe stick with the basics and art, I mean, or even math and science or let's say history, let's say, but you can't neglect music and, and these extracurriculars, if, if, you know, if you will, because that really uh, exercises a part of the brain that maybe isn't used with these other subjects and, and really goes into making someone a better person. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's very necessary. Um, and and unfortunately, it seems like when when these budget cuts happen, the first things they go for are these like you know arts and humanities types of um, areas. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, and that's what's happened. Um, it's happened to me as a father from two of my daughters will no longer have music, and it's happened to me as as uh, in my profession that I no longer have the music teaching position I want you know, in the community that I was happy with. I was, you know, I felt for the first time, yes, okay, we had this federal funding coming in. What happened with the pandemic is yes, there are some parents and families that left, but, you know, to have with Bloomberg, his idea was everyone tighten their belt. We got to max the class sizes that became the normal under like Walcott and Bloomberg. Um, and now it was like I was teaching 20 or 22 in a class. And what I can do as a music teacher is I can put an instrument in everyone's hand. And what I can do as a music teacher is I, it doesn't become so noisy that students are, you know, covering their ears because, you know, it's a lot have sensitivity to sound and our room isn't soundproof. So that's what I tell the teachers who are like complaining about kids chatting. I'm always like, you, you, you know, how about when you have chatting and you have instruments being played at once, you know? So, I mean, I'm able to, to have a functioning class with every student being attended to and getting to know my students better. Um, I don't have to teach to a test. I do have to teach to a performance sometimes, but with a smaller class size, I can get to know who they are and know what, what makes them tick. And that just makes us, you know, you're both, you've been in bands, you know, you need to, you need to have pancake breakfast sometimes, as Questlove said. I always love that line. Questlove says, a band needs pancake breakfast. You can't just be just about the gig, you know, and preparing. You have to sit down with each other because it makes the right. band better. Wow. So, you know, I consider my classes like my band, you know what? It's really crazy, especially, I don't know, just, uh, it also reminds me of uh, what's happening in Florida with, um, they're having a teacher drought, basically. They're not having enough people to come in and, and be teachers. And so the, the governor has uh, allowed for uh, veterans to take on teaching roles, even if they have no experience teaching. And not only veterans, but veterans and their wives can now go into schools and be teachers, even if they have no teaching certificate and no background in teaching because they're having Substitute such a- Teachers or full-time teachers? Sorry? Are they substitute teachers or full-time teachers? Um, I don't know specifically, but I, I think from from the from the stuff that I'm reading, it sounds like they can just be full uh, because they're having a, a difficulty hiring teachers uh, in Florida right now um, for for whatever reasons. Maybe the pay has been reduced or cut. Or Definitely whatever less than a lot of other places. It probably destroyed the union there. That's probably <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and so now they're like, oh yeah, we can. What's I forget the the governor's name, but it's like yeah, let's, the stages, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's get these veterans in here, and he doesn't know how to teach. What is he doing in there? And the wives, the wives too. For some reason, you know, neither one of them can be have any kind of experience. So it's, it's wow. kind of crazy. Well, 
<laughs> with everything going on in this crazy world, people might be trying to ease their burdens, relieve their stress and in all kinds of ways. So on that note, we asked people last week what they thought. I see Jay just got the segue. What did people think it. about the federal <laughs> effort to legalize marijuana? On my poll, 100% said yes. And there were a lot of people who answered too. It was just a couple of answers. <laughs> a lot of people were drawn to my poll to say yes, Jay, and it was unanimous. I figured a lot of people would, uh, would chime in on that one. Um, yeah, and the polls that I ran, it was, again, it was the same thing. It was 100 pe- 100% of people said, yes, that marijuana should be legalized at the federal level um, at this point. And um, it actually did really well in, as a poll on, on YouTube. We had over, you know, uh, I think it was like one, one what, five, over 1,600 uh, views on the, on the video for, um, for that poll. And people, there were some responses, and all those responses said yes. Um, and then there were just a lot of thumbs up. So I'm going to assume since they didn't respond that the thumbs up means that they agree with it and thumbs down would mean that they disagree. And if that's the case, it was over 80% of people gave a thumbs up on, on that. So, But I you also might have had people, because I know I saw one of the comments, they were just upset that we asked the question again. Like, how come you guys keep asking the question instead of doing it? So that, that might have been a thumbs down for all we know. Like, why, why, why do you keep asking us this? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to tie I'd tie it into to what we were talking about that some states have legalized as a way to fund education shortfalls and budget. Yeah, yeah, that that's a, you know that uh, tax money coming in can can be allocated to many places, and education is, is a good one. Um, so you know, just bringing that up and and uh, just a brief aside, I thought. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't the lottery supposed to be helping to fund education in yeah. New York? That's Shouldn't true. There, is there not money there? They've taken in a gangload of money. I don't know. Eric Adams was talking about, it sounded like he wanted to open up a whole bunch of casinos, which I mean, I'm just rooting for Resorts World by us here because I think it could do a, a wonderful, uh, it could be a wonderful boon to the economy for South and Southeast Queens. Um, I, I, I don't, he was talking, I think one at college point. I mean, I'd rather, why don't you start with one in Queens and, and see how we do. Um, but yeah, that, that money is supposed to go to education. Correct. Right. When I was working up in Albany, someone called me and I forget all of the details now, but they were complaining that whatever research they found or whatever they looked at seemed to suggest that not all of that money was going to education as promised, that somehow it was being appropriated in a different way, but they wanted to see more of it, as much of it as it was supposed to go to education, actually go to fund educational programs. Right, and then uh, Lixa in the comment is saying that the casinos also um, said- well, Yeah, well, uh, right, and resorts is, uh, has been a lottery casino. So that was how resorts was able to operate even before New York moved to legalize traditional casinos. Resorts was operating as, basically a, a lottery facility where you go in and you're playing these poker machines or these slots, but what you're really playing lottery, that was kind of the loophole that allowed it to open in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, they're saying they're bringing in bills, billions of revenue um, and, you know, asking where the budget for education is going. Like it would seem, I mean, even with the money they're getting from the government and the money they're getting from, from lottery and from casinos, you would think that you wouldn't be needing to do cuts like that. I could be wrong. I, I just wish Eric Adams would spend half as much time as he is trying to fight what is an incremental 
amount. It's just a minuscule amount of the overall budget. And work on trying to advocate to get money for more for schools, not be so concerned with the, well, depending on the estimate, somewhere between 250 or 400, uh, $475 million, which is just a drop in the bucket. If you spend half that time maybe trying to advocate to get us more funding or to come to accept like, wow, it doesn't have to be shoestring. Like schools can actually feel like they're getting funded instead of always you know, feeling like we're getting some form of trickle down. Um, you know, I, I just wish that was more the norm. Uh, yeah. uh, that you know, schools should be funded. That this you talk about wanting to lower crime. Like, um, I was about to say, name, I'm not gonna. But I know there was. I know there are schools that normally have a flourishing summer school program where kids can come and take credits. Usually, it's more on the fun side. Like, let's say if they normally are doing like an art class, then here it would be they'd go to museums. You know, they take advantage of what the the city has to offer and they do a class on that and get credit. I know. I know of a school that is. Uh, on shoestring um, amount of classes that a lot of teachers that depend on those, uh, you know, uh, opportunities to make a little extra cash over the summer uh, have been told they they can't do it this year because of the cuts. Right. So now you have, and we all know, crime rises in the summer, and you know most of the crime is committed by teenagers or young adults. That if you start cutting classes where kids can't, you know, engage in some some form of education then, you know, like, how are you saying you're the mayor who's fighting crime, you know? That's a good point. And getting back to the marijuana issue, if you legalize it federally, that will allow marijuana businesses to move away from being cash-only businesses. Now they're using the banks. Now more of those transactions really are going to get reported, and you're going to see more tax revenue as a result of that. And yes, I agree. Let's put that to education. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, cash businesses, it's easy to, to under-report um, what's coming in, so. Right. Yeah, so, well, I mean, if the poll, if, if our results uh, match what's, what's the sentiment in the country, then, uh, you know, I think uh, it should be, it should be legalized at the federal level. Um, it's pretty archaic. I think it makes sense. I think since the states are moving in that direction, what is the argument really against it? I mean, even people on the right who say it's all about states' rights, well, the states are speaking on this too. So why is the federal government blocking it at this point? Right, absolutely. So we only have a few minutes left. Really, we're over time, so we want to wrap up, but we do want to get to the topics. We, we want to put out a, a poll question for this week, and I don't know how much time we're going to spend on it, but we figured monkeypox is a big issue, and we want to get people's thoughts as to whether they were concerned it was going to be the next pandemic, I know people talk about pandemic fatigue, but these issues are very real, so we have to deal with them. Yeah. Monkeypox is one of those things where we just hear about it now, but I don't know if it's affected anyone that we know. I mean, I, I you know, it's, I read about it in the news, but I, I don't know anyone, I don't think, who has suffered from it. So, you know, until it hits home, I think people have a hard time taking things seriously, even though we really should. Right. The, the WHO about last week or the week before issued a... a a global warning about monkeypox. Um, and in New York City, New York just recently issued a, a state of emergency over uh, monkeypox because the cases are, are on a rise. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like one after another. It's kind of crazy. And then you take COVID, which is back on a big surge. And so some of the mask mandates are coming back into play in a lot of places and cases are going back up. Um, so, you know, could we be looking at another another thing with with monkeypox well i guess that could be the poll question of the week 
are you concerned that monkeypox could become the next pandemic? Yeah, man. Hopefully they can they can curtail this before it gets around. One thing I think we can say is, is monkeypox isn't new, like uh, like COVID was. Um, so they're already treatments there's already um things in place that that can be used to treat it so hopefully they can keep that uh, we can keep that under control because we already have measures for for monkeypox and we know about monkeypox um so that should be fine and i think one other point that that real quickly should be addressed is that early on when monkeypox was coming out um as spreading it was being reported that it was largely the people getting affected were largely gay men and those are the those make up the bulk of the cases. However, it is not a gay disease. It can be transmitted to anybody. It's just that this was the group that was um, being infected at the time um, and getting and still have the majority. Right, and it isn't strictly a sexually transmitted infection either. Right, get it just from breathing on people, I believe. And touching touching the fluids or the the, the scabs that might that form um, or touching things that might have it on it it's you know possible to spread that way so it's definitely not just like a gay disease or or from a sexual disease so right and let's hope let's hope this doesn't spread out you know we need to get rid of covid you know let's not add something to it <laughs> yeah, yeah in fact uh, my my daughter um my daughter uh, got a her best friend's birthday got canceled last week because uh, the girl got hand, foot, and mouth disease. You know, Coxsackie, it's called. And I'm like, oh yeah, those things that kids get, they still happen. You know, you forget during everything's COVID, COVID, COVID. Oh yeah, there's still hand, foot, and mouth disease and pink eye and all that lovely stuff you get from being in the classroom. Are kids getting mono anymore? Um, I'm sure they, I'm sure they do. I, I got the, my daughter and I got the flu in, um, in, in springtime. We both got it together. So an enjoyable few days at home, uh, with that. So, you know, the, all that stuff's still going around. It didn't, it didn't take a break yeah. because of COVID. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Paul, we thank you for joining us. And what we've been doing here is we've been allowing our guests to give us the last word. We call it the bottom line. So whatever closing thoughts you have, um, whatever you want to discuss, whatever you want to leave people with, the floor is yours. What is the bottom line? Sure. Um, I'll say two things. First, I'm going to do a plug. Um, and the plug is if the story about these budget cuts has uh, engaged you, um, we are, the court date again is August 4th at 10 a.m. at the New York uh, State Supreme Court at 80 Center Street, uh, room 308. You can join us at the courtroom to show your support. But before then, there's going to be a rally at Foley Square at 9.30 a.m. So come down, bring your signs, let Eric Adams know he is on the wrong path on this. Let him know that getting things done should not involve undoing all the work that we've done try to get normalized things for the pandemic with our students and do the best job we can. So, uh, you know, we appreciate, you know, any support you can give on this because uh, these kids need, need their music programs and either our programs need their guidance counselors. And uh, we'll see if we can get it done. Excellent. Well, good luck to you. And we commend you for all that you're doing. I think you're fighting the good fight and that's what we need. Uh, no, no one better than you to do it. So, you know, we, we hope that this can be reconsidered and hopefully it will lead to another vote with more information that these council members will then be able to responsibly address this. Uh, it seems like they weren't given that chance initially.
that's what it seems like. Yes. Yeah, so we'll have to see how it goes. You know, stay tuned. It's going to be uh, interesting no matter how it turns out. Excellent. Well, thank you. And thank you all for tuning in. This has been Nuance. Don't forget, subscribe on YouTube, Nuance with Mike Scala and Jay Carter. You can also check out the audio wherever podcasts can be heard, Apple, Spotify, so on and so forth. We'll catch you all next time. Bye-bye.